All right. So I am super, super excited. Dr. Jerry's in the house and all of you are in our house tonight, our virtual house. It is so good to see all of you. So many familiar faces. We have almost maxed out the hundred seats that we had for the meeting. It's the first time that we've got to 98. So, so many people have registered and that's great because tonight, tonight we are celebrating. We are celebrating the goodness of God. We are celebrating his providence together. We're celebrating how God worked through Dr. Jerry to bring this book, Litanies of the Heart, about. So, Dr. Jerry, you and I, we talked about the book on this Interior Integrations for Catholics podcast just before it was released. That was on episode 130 that aired on January 15th, the day before the release. And now we are back. We are back to celebrate this book's release together, together with you, together with our live audience, something really, really special. So I have got my copy in my hand right here. Just a little bit of background on Dr. Jerry as we're getting started. Dr. Jerry, he's a licensed and marriage family therapist in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the former president of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. He has been adjunct faculty at a number of different universities. He's the founder and owner of Transfiguration Counseling, and he's the co-founder with me of Souls and Hearts back in 2019. And we've been going strong for more than four years now. And Dr. Jerry, it is so good to have you back with us. Great to be with you and everyone. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for being here tonight. It is so good to be with, you know, with all of you. Now let's show Dr. Jerry here some appreciation for his book. What was really great about Dr. Jerry's book or what you appreciated about Dr. Jerry's book? It's brilliant and such a great read. Love the testimonies at the beginning of each chapter. Beautiful integration of IFS and our Catholic faith. <laughs> and then this one, move I love over, it. Freud. Move over, <laughs> Freud. Move over, Freud. I just love it. That is great. And the, the diagram on page 57. So glad to have an IFS book that relates to our Catholic faith. That is just amazing. Yeah, I agree so much with these comments that we're getting, you know, just starting, but I'm looking forward to a deep dive into this book with the Lord, the connections to other modalities and the integration of our faith in an understandable way. Absolutely. The world collides, right? IFS and Catholicism. Give me permission to be curious with my negative parts and to spend time with them in adoration, transforming, beautiful. This book could not have come at a more perfect time. Just love it. Just love it. So thank you. Thank you. Just a little sampling of the appreciation. And I have heard so much, so much feedback about this book. It's only been out about a month, a little less than a month at the time that we're recording this. So. I am really, really happy to be here in all of these things. Now, we're celebrating together in gratitude. We're thankful to God from whom all blessings flow. We're also thankful to Dr. Jerry for all the effort, all the work, all the energy, all the suffering, Dr. Jerry, that you put into this book for us. And so many other people are also valuing Dr. Jerry's book. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of stats here, a few stats about where this book is selling on Amazon right now in different categories right? Some amazing milestones. Now it hasn't held these positions at every moment over the last month, but it's hit these at various points. Number one in new releases and post-traumatic stress disorder category. So number one in new releases in PTSD, that's just not Catholic. That's across all PTSD new releases. Number one in new releases in self-help for Catholics. Number one in new releases in Catholicism, self-help. 
number one in bestsellers in Catholicism in self-help, number three in bestsellers for in self-help for Catholics, and number four in new releases in Christian self-help category. So this thing is like rising up, and this is kind of an impressive one. It's number 20 in the general post-traumatic stress disorder category, all right? So across all books that are out there right now, a PTSD, it's, it's selling at number 20. And that's just on Amazon. That doesn't include all the direct sales from Sophia Press. There have been thousands of direct sales from Sophia Press already. We're just a month out, so it's really exciting. One more thing. One more time I'm going to ask you before we get started, before I, before I let Dr. Jerry talk. For those of you who have had a chance to read the book, the entire book is just part of the book. How did that book land with you and your parts? Just how was it? Like, just give me some adjectives. Just give me some emotions. Just give me something about what that book was like. Affirming, accessible. Yes, absolutely. Touches my heart. The truth just feels like the truth. Peaceful, supported and loved, supported and loved. You know, there's a way that people are experiencing something in this book. And that's what I think also makes this book really so special. Healing, people experiencing healing, empathy, safety, rocket fuel for hope. And that is one thing I think about this book that is really special, that it does bring about the hope. Dr. Jerry, being a hope merchant and in, and in a way that's really authentically Catholic, really grounded in our Catholic faith. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski. I'm also known as Dr. Peter. I am your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, and I'm so glad to be with you all. I'm a clinical psychologist. I am a trauma therapist, a podcaster, a writer, and the co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts. But most of all, I am a beloved little son of God, a passionate Catholic who wants to help you taste and see the height and depth and breadth and warmth and the light of the love of God, especially God, your father. It's really important for us to be able to connect with God as our father, as his beloved little sons and daughters, and also Mary, our mother. And I am here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little child of God and Mary. That is what this podcast is all about. That's what this episode is all about. And to bring it about, to live out our mission, I bring you new ways of understanding yourself, fresh conceptualizations informed by the best of human formation resources in psychology and always grounded in the authoritative teachings of the Catholic Church. This is Interior Integration for Catholics, episode number 132. It's titled Live Q&A with Dr. Jerry on his book, Litanies of the Heart. It's recorded live on February 13th, and it's released on February 19th, 2024. It is so good again to be here. Thank you again for being here. And now I just want to turn it over to you, Dr. Jerry. I have been talking sharing my experience of all of this and the experience of some of the folks that are gathered with us today. And I just want to turn it over to you for just, you know, just some initial thoughts. If you'd like to get us started with some thoughts today before we go to the Q and A. Yes. Thank you so much for all of that. And, and such a great welcome and introduction. And thank you for, you know, generating those comments too. And I would just say, first of all, Peter, I thank you. And I don't think I would be in this place without you. I think we've been on a journey together. <laughs> yeah, we have. And I think on our journey, if we you know go back to it, all the way back to that CPA conference many years ago, where I presented on EMDR and talked about The Walking Dead and so on, I think that <laughs> that we might not be here today. So, and certainly this particular book wouldn't have been written the way it it's been written. So, thank you. And also, just for me, 
honestly, I was tearing up a little with those comments. So thank you everyone for those comments because it means so much to me. A lot of vulnerability went into writing this book. A lot of clinical experience over years and years went into this book. A lot of my own, you know, just spiritual understanding went into this book. And so putting that out there is a big act of vulnerability, I think, for mm -hmm. me. And so honestly, to have people say those things moves me. Mm -hmm. I appreciate yeah. it. It was gutsy move to write this the way that you did, Dr. Jerry. Gutsy move. Got a lot of respect for you really opening your heart and sharing who you are in this book you know, and all of what you've, not just what you've learned, but what you've experienced and, and really even more centrally who you are in this book. So. But doing that is one thing, but then having people say, Hey, it moved me or Hey, it right. hit me. And I had an experience just earlier today where someone had reached out to me who said that after reading the book, it gave them confidence to share for the first time. This is a person, I think fifties that they had been sexually abused as a child. And mm -hmm. You know, the fact that it's impacting lives just really uh, matters a lot to me and really makes me feel very honored. Beautiful. Well, we don't want to take much more time before we get to just a conversation with you. A reminder before we start that this podcast is for educational purposes. We don't offer any clinical services here. We're not doing any psychotherapy or counseling or assessment or anything like that on this podcast or in Souls and Hearts. But we need to talk about this book. We need to talk about the themes it raises. We need to talk about your experiences of the book. It's an opportunity here to share from your hearts about what this has meant and what, how it's impacted you. And so like we've done before in our live podcast recordings, we're going to open up the conversation. I do have one that was sent in beforehand, Dr. Jerry, and it's this one. Can 58 years of arranging my life to recycle the feelings of shame from being molested be addressed? I'm 64. I've ordered the book and I will study it during Lent. Well, yeah, I mean, I believe very strongly that it's, so to speak, never too late. <laughs> You're still young <laughs> at that age, I hope so. And I'm just so gratified that this person is taking this step. And I am gratified if my book is a starting place for them to really explore this abuse they experienced. I would hope that, you know, they get whatever help they need as well, if they need anything more. But I'm gratified that that's a beginning step. I, I don't think that it matters, even if you're 95. I think, you know, we're all on a journey of healing. And it, I don't believe like we, we just heal, we do some EMDR, or we do some parts work or something and we're done. I think it's an ongoing journey. I mean, I think until the father takes us into his arms, I think we're always going to be healing. We're always going to be growing. Yeah. I would say that, you know, for example, in the resilient Catholics community, most people in the resilient Catholics community are in their forties, fifties, or sixties. There's some in their seventies. And so, yeah, lots of people on the journey, uh, lots of people having a sense of being called out of their typical way of life, their typical zone, being called on a journey in midlife and late life. So it's not something that uh, is just for folks that are young. Carol, what would you like to share with us? Thank you. I have a story here that I know I have a book inside of me, but whenever I try to go deep, I stop. It's like I can't go deep and I don't know how to break that barrier. But a little bit of my background, I was conceived in rape. 
I was um, adopted when I was a baby. But in the first year of my life, in the first nine months, actually, I was taken away from three mother figures. So my birth mother, my future adoptive mother, and then she got sick. And then I went to a temporary foster home. And I I was born in May, so I was returned in December, just before Christmas. So before that period of time, I was detached from my birth mother and then adoptive mother. And when I returned, she said I was never the same when they had decided to adopt me. I was very clingy. And so all my life, I've, I've always had that attachment uh, with a whole bunch of different relationships just I know that it's a root cause, I guess, for decisions I've made in my life. And I'm a mother of three adult kids, seven grandkids. So I have a beautiful pro-life testimony that I've shared here in Northern Ontario and a few places. And I know there's a story, people that I need to reach, especially with newborn babies and abortion. So I really do want to use this writing gift that the Lord has given me but as soon as I try going deeper, it's like there's a blockage there and I can't seem to go. So I'm really hoping that I can get into a deep dive into this book with the Lord because I've tried other areas too. And St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, St. Ignatius of Loyola, they're my go-to saints. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate it and I, I really look forward to reading your book, Dr. Pete. Thank you. Let me just start by saying I really am honored that you shared that and I want to honor your resilience that you've been through so much and yet look at what you're doing, look what you've done, given that it's beautiful, a beautiful testimony to the Lord's work in your life. I only know a little bit from what you shared, but I, I can see it, I can feel it. So my heart really goes out to you there. I want to encourage you that I know this is, <laughs> we look at it from an IFS perspective and all that. So I'm wondering either it's a part of you, maybe it's coming from, from a deep within and that, that inmost self that wants to write this, that wants to share this story. And it sounds like maybe there's a, a part <laughs> or two <laughs> that are saying, heck no. <laughs> and so I, I, I would encourage first maybe to spend some time with them, like really understand what those parts are afraid of, what they're worried about what they're scared might happen if, if you share that story. Really make sure that you take them into account. I would also say, at least for me anyway, if you do decide to sit down, you get to a point maybe those parts are sort of willing to give it some time or willing to let you write a little or something. How about don't write it for anybody? Write it for you and God. And don't promise you're going to give it to anybody and just go there and just see what happens. And then you don't have to, you can write whatever you wrote and you can look at it a day or two or a week later, a month later and decide from there. How about that? Beautiful. Beautiful. We have a response, I think, to the first question we have when one of our, our number here in the audience says, I'm 64. And I have been experiencing narcissistic abuse for 30 years. I have just started IFS therapy and have hope for the first time. It's never too late for sure. Keep your eyes on heaven. I agree. <laughs> yeah. That theme of hope that came up earlier, you know, is just something that's so precious. 
Yeah, I, I'm just always moved by these stories, people's stories, and of resilience. Of you know, and and I think when you you look at your story, if you write your story and so on, you don't have to write it, but I think you find ways in which God was working all along, often. But you also just find the yeah, other you worked through and made it through those things and got to a place to seek help or get healing, and it's just beautiful. So I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. Well, Tanya, you've got your hand up. Love to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm still at the beginning of the book and just learning about this process. But I think the one thing that's been very helpful in the beginning of this learning is um, I've become more gentle to myself. I used to be very self judgment and critical and and I would want to just run away from the negative emotions and parts. But now it's, I don't know, I just feel like this, it's okay. It's okay to sit with it. It's okay to be curious and ask questions about it. Find out the why, you know, why is it there? What is it? What's the function? And so I've be, I've just become more gentle with myself. And that has brought a lot of healing for me to move forward. So. That's one of the biggest parts that I've kind of come to in the beginning of learning about this right now. Thank you. Thank you. I am grateful to hear that as well. It's a funny thing. I I don't know if any of you or many of you have listened to the podcast I did recently with, uh, or that recently aired anyway, with Pines with Aquinas, with Matt. I've known Matt for a while now and everything, and, and we're, we're close. But he kept asking me, I'll just give you a little of my private opinion and one little part of it, is that he kept asking me a little bit or baiting me slightly in a nice way on what about just getting mad or what about tough love or what about isn't, you know, is this all just too nice? And I was also on a podcast if you haven't seen it, it's, I think it's pretty good. Uh, Rosary Army with Greg and Jennifer Willits. They interviewed me because they live nearby. We did it in person. And and Greg did the, a little bit of the same thing in asking me, you know, oh, this just sounds too like lovey-dovey or something, you know. And and I've really been wrestling a little bit with why I get that. <laughs> you know, I get that response. And uh, that why are people, first of all, afraid to be, as you were saying, gentle with themselves? And why are they sometimes afraid to be gentle with others and loving? To, like, why is that a sign of weakness or something? And I think sometimes we're afraid if we're if we're not tough on ourselves or if we're not tough on others that we love, that somehow we're being like laissez-faire or lenient or anything goes and everything's going to fall apart. And, and so I think you can be loving to yourself and gentle and kind and, and compassionate but still have boundaries and still speak truth and still it, it's not a hammer. It's not a, it doesn't have to be, <laughs> you know, a guillotine coming down, but it, it can be, it can be done from a place, you know, from a place of self. Right. So anyway, that came up for me when you were sharing what you were sharing about being gentle to yourself. So thank you. So one of the things that I have so appreciated about you, Jerry, over the years that I've known you and in the relationship that we've developed again over years, long before even we started souls and hearts together is just your gentleness. And I think that does come out in the book, you know, and I think it's such a beautiful thing to see a combination of gentleness and masculinity in a man, 
you know, and I think you've got this, this way of being able to really embody that. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for that and grateful to God for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, it's funny. I'll just do a little side note here in case it's interesting to anybody. It might not be maybe to a few Canadians. My, my grandfather, who was a, a really beautiful influence in my life, didn't have a great relationship with my earthly father, but my grandfather was a kind and gentle, loving person. And he was actually a musician and he had like five or six albums in uh, Canada, like producing Canada back in like, I don't know, 60s, 1960s. And he was on the, he was the guitarist on the Family Brown, which is a TV show some people may know about if they're from Canada <laughs> or they're of a certain age and from Canada. And, uh, but my mom wrote his memoir and the name of the memoir was Ken Davidson. That was his name, a gentleman of music. And I, I thought he was a gentleman, like he embodied, what does it mean? You know, we say gentleman like casually, but when we really look at the word gentleman, it, you know, it just, it, it speaks a lot to me. It speaks to uh, my grandfather. Thank you for, for saying that, Peter, because mm-hmm. I feel like I got some of that maybe from him. Yeah. Beautiful. So we have a question that's come in on the chat. I'm new and just learning to. A non-Catholic IFS therapist mentioned to me that not all parts know the Lord Jesus and do not have a relationship with him. Can that be true? Can it be true that not all parts know Jesus or that not all parts have a relationship with him? Well, I, I would say that would be very true. I mean, do parts not know Jesus at all, like in the sense of have never heard of him? Like, you know, like somebody on an island that grew up without, maybe not. I think some, most of them, most of our parts, unless they're extraordinarily exiled and out of uh, consciousness completely, <laughs> have, have heard of Jesus on some level. And maybe even something about Jesus or God has frightened them or caused them to want that part to want to hide more or to be frightened or whatnot. So usually if there's a part that is having that kind of reaction, it goes back to some sort of trauma. It could be spiritual abuse. It could be even I've had people that had terrible traumas and they, they will say, you know, when I, I was a child and I called out to God and he didn't answer me. And so a part then hides away, like a part turns away, basically away from God. So, so yeah, I, I think we can definitely, most of us have some parts that have some issues with God one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God images, you know, different parts have different images of God, I would say. And when a part is not in right relationship with your innermost self, when there's not that order inside, uh, when there's not that integration, that part's impression of God or felt experience of God is going to be off in some way. There's going to be uh, ways that that part's the understanding of God's going to be distorted. And a lot of times it's from generalizing from other types of relationships onto God, projecting onto God, transferring onto God, what that part has experienced, or at least how it made sense of its experience with other figures, including figures that at least to that part might have seemed in some ways godlike, you know, parents or or other authority figures. And and we might have a tendency, right, to exile those parts. And so what we really want to do is actually invite them to the table, so to speak, the way they are. And and we think about it 
if you're evangelizing someone, you don't yell at them, you don't shove them aside, you don't, you know, call them names, you actually call them close and you want to hear their story and you want to understand them and you want to work from where they're at and you want to develop a friendship. You have to have a relationship if you're going to convert somebody's heart or allow the Holy Spirit to convert their heart through your witness. You, you have to be a friend. So it's the same principles as a traumatized part, a part that's turned for some reason against God. We're, we're inviting those parts in closer. I, I feel like that's what I've been saying. I feel like I've been saying that for a while in a number of podcasts and radio shows because it's sort of hitting me like we need to do almost the opposite reaction of what sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is. When it comes to some of these parts, we actually need to bring them closer. The parts that are struggling with pornography or substance abuse or the parts that are angry at God or the parts that are hurting, like we actually want to call them in, you know? And, and I think sometimes our gut, our normal reaction is to push them away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And our Lord, I think shows us the way in the gospels, right? He's always reaching out to the lost sheep, to the outcasts, you know, to the, to those that have been marginalized in society, the sinners, the lepers, the lame, the blind, the the tax collectors and the prostitutes. You know, I think there's a model there of of how to relate with those kind of parts that have been rejected within our own selves. You know, because our Lord has asked us, our Lord has commanded us in the first great commandment, you know, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. And when I think about that, the whole heart, and I am reminded of the diagram on page 57 of the book, my favorite page of the whole book with the diagram of the human person. And I look at like the heart, you know, in the middle here, it's not just the inmost self. It's also all the parts, all of the parts are located in the heart, according to this rendering this diagram that dr jerry offers us so when god asks us to love him when he commands us to love him with our whole heart that means all of our parts no part left behind it's not just supposed to be done by three spiritual managers you know on the deck of our ship who have you know locked all the other sailors all the other parts of us down below the deck you know it's it's to be all of us so i think that's just something that's so important to be remembering because i think the default for so many catholics for all for almost all catholics is for a relatively small number of parts to be running their spiritual lives by the way there's a bigger picture at the back oh is there um, of that oh yeah yeah oh, oh yeah 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 i found this one before this is yeah on page 299 yeah there it is yeah, yeah. it's a lot easier to see that one version. <laughs> There's a cool story there because and it's not that interesting story, but I'll throw it out anyway. But <laughs> I, I was like been wrestling with that diagram and drawing different ones and everything. And I had done the circles and I'd, you know, putting together, basically trying to combine lots of different thought into it. And then it kind of came together and I sent it to a bunch of my friends, including Dr. Peter here and our good friend, Dr. Mark Glafke, that he's the director of counseling at the NAC, the uh, seminary in Rome. And he, actually took my little paper diagram with my scribbles and he actually made it into that diagram mm -hmm. and he sent it and i was like thank you i can't do that apparently uh <laughs> on the computer and sophia just took it as is they didn't even fix it so or not fix it but you know they didn't do anything to it i didn't know if they would so 
you all know it was Dr. Mark Lafke who who did the mm-hmm. design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he did. He did. I wish that I still had the original copy though, because it was it was endearing in its own sort of uh, its own sort of way, Dr. Jerry. So <laughs> well, you probably I did I send it via text? I can't remember. I, I can't so remember how you somewhere. sent it. I probably have it somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be in a museum someday. <laughs> <laughs> So we have a question here. I am new to IFS and started with an IFS therapist a few months ago. I'm still only in the introduction of Dr. Jerry's book. My biggest trauma occurred when I was 13 years old. This might be a really basic question, but I'm wondering if we're naturally in self as children. Are we naturally in self prior to experiencing trauma? I guess I'm wondering if it's possible I was more myself at the age of eight or nine than I have been since the age of 13. I'm now 44. Wow, what a great question. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I have the answer. I think this is something I'm still kind of working through a lot of these questions about self and development of parts in infancy and, you know, prenatal, for example, or after birth or developmentally. So I don't know that anybody could probably just say, yes, we have the answer on that. I have a tendency, though, my immediate thought is to go to Jesus and in him saying, let the little children come to me, and the way that he saw children as so pure of heart and so innocent and so, dare I say, in self. So I'm not saying children don't have parts and don't behave in problematic ways and things like that, too. But but I, I think that children have access to their self, to the inmost self in a way that most of us adults kind of, you know, we get lost in our own selves, so to speak. So I don't know if that answers the question or starts to answer the question, but it's such a good one. So I don't know, Dr. Peter, did you have thoughts? On- I I, I kind of do. Yeah. In fact, of course I, uh, you do. <laughs> I have some thoughts about that. Yeah. There was an article. I'm going to see if I can find it. Yeah, here we go. And I mentioned this in episode 120 of the podcast. This is from uh, Charles Finney. He was the second president of Oberlin College. He was a Presbyterian minister. And he wrote in 1852 a sermon called The Childlike Spirit, An Essential Condition of Entering Heaven. And he had these, these list of qualities. I, I, distilled this, I distilled this out of that sermon, but there were 15 qualities that he talked about children having that we need to have in order to enter into heaven and they include awe wonder trust humility confiding that's loving to share candor vulnerability affection transparency reverence openness tolerating dependency questioning delighting and playing those were the, the qualities that he identified. And if you think about what happens with trauma, and not just with trauma, but just even like what you might call little t trauma or just the slings and arrows, the trials of life, you know, what happens when we take all that in? You know, we lose those qualities. Like if you look at what happens in a, in a trauma response, we lose those childlike qualities in some ways i think the people that were the most grown up in scripture were the pharisees right you know uh in a sense right the most adult the most perfect in a sense or whatever so 
when uh, when our Lord tells us, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, he's he's talking about, he's using, in Latin, it's rendered as parvulos. When that, that's a diminutive of for parvus. And so it's like little, little children. These are like toddlers. You know, these are like infants, toddlers, maybe preschoolers, but not not older kids. And so they're the ones that have that freedom and so forth. So I agree with you, Dr. Jerry. It's not that uh, little children are not untouched by the effects of original sin, but yeah, there's often this this childlike spirit. Yes, May. Hello to both of you, and thank you so very much for all that you've given. I suffered a lot from abuse, neglect, abandonment, but very much because of having a narcissistic parent and sibling, and very much spiritual abuse, in which was has been very hard for me to untangle the truth about how God sees me. And so I didn't even know we were allowed to think things about God. Like, seriously, I thought you just follow the rules and you'll be okay. You don't make God get up out of his chair because, you know, he'll be mad with you. So there's been a long journey because there was like no empathy and whatever, but I have this one little part. And then I had globus like forever. I couldn't, I couldn't speak and my throat always hurt. But this young part that I allow in my journal to say whatever it wants to say, whatever it wants to say, even if it has a bad word to say out of frustration, it's allowed to say this part. And that has loosened up so much in my throat. And then I allow the parts that had this judgmental God that's so afraid of him to refute with his word or with something that you all have said, something in your book, or refute that that wasn't true, but this is true. And it's kind of helping me like a lot, a lot. And, you know, I had to figure out the separation of, I am not you, I am myself and beloved child of God, which I'm learning more and more is the, is the path for me to healing. So I just profoundly thank you both very, very much for listening to the inclination of the Holy Spirit and setting a lot of Catholics free. I've been in prayer groups many, many, many years, and a lot of Catholics have a lot of stuff that they're never, ever, ever comfortable to go to. It's like, nope, we just say our prayers and we stay here. So that's a big thing. And then I had a question to say, ask you that my pastor has been at the Mundelein Seminary and doing the Spiritual Center for Priestly Formation, finished his third year, but I don't know much about it, but do you think I, I bought him this book, but I'm afraid to give it to him in case that's conflicting with maybe what he's been going through for the last three years. Maybe you don't have the answer to that. So he w your pastor was at Mondelein doing the priestly formation program there? Yes. Yeah, it was a three-year program where he kept coming back to take the courses. Mm. And now he got he kind of has a certification from, from there. So I would love to give him your book. Yeah, but I don't know if it would be conflicting with anything that he's learned. And well, if it's the program, I think it is. I think it's a really good program. I don't know, Doctor Peter, if you're familiar. I, I've known priests that I believe have done that same program, and I thought it was was fairly well done. And I, I would hope that there wouldn't be a conflict with the book, and I wouldn't be afraid to give it to him. Yeah, and I think he's if he's a pastor, he's grown up, so I think he can handle. <laughs> You know, if there is something discordant and you can just say, hey, if you have questions, reach out to Dr. Cherry. <laughs> I'll be happy to answer those questions or, or anything. Yeah. You know, but what you said earlier hit me with something about that hit me. 
I was just talking on Monday with a religious sister who is also reading the book, and she pointed out, like, she liked on page, I think, five, and, and, I, and I say there at the top, I say, if the inmost self can be seen as synonymous with the heart in this regard, and I had just quoted the catechism about the heart being the depths of one's being, then the inmost self also includes the conscience and can choose between good and evil. And what she pointed out to me that I thought was actually really interesting was that with spiritual abuse, somebody else gets in the way in the middle of God and the conscience or God and the inmost self in that space. When it's supposed to be the space between you and God and your core spiritual center and God and something else gets in the way, some abusive controlling person, some somebody that's trying to tell you that you have to perform to earn God's love or somebody that's telling you you're not lovable, you're not good enough as you are, or whatever that message is and whatever whatever wherever it's coming from and and that 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 gets in the way needs to be kind of removed and if it's a part that has adopted that it it doesn't mean you destroy the part so much as that you 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 have to approach it and you know and uh, it almost has to unlearn if you will that it might be very difficult but to unlearn that and it maybe needs to be challenged and taken to a different space not between you and god so that you can work with that part and understand oh when did when did that part learn those messages about spirituality that aren't from God? And what can, how can we bring that part, that part also, like we were saying before, bring that part into relationship, true relationship with God? A lot of healing for this part, it has been just listening to Dr. Peter's podcast. And there were some place in me that intuited that can't be right. And so when I hear the thing that Dr. Peter says that that rings as the truth, it's like the part hears that too. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And can kind of give up a little bit of that. It's just something that rings true and gives peace to to all to all my parts, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well that's good. That that instinct and maybe that wisdom is I would say it sounds like it is coming from that inmost self that knows yes. tell the truth versus lie so we had a question here dr jerry i really like this question because i think it gets to something that people may not intuitively understand immediately and the question is this one in attachment terms would you say dr jerry that misattunement can happen pre-verbally maybe changing to access to the self pretty early so here we're getting to someone who's really young before the age of maybe two two and a half before there's this ability to represent experience in language to symbolize it in words what would you say in attachment terms like misattunement the effect when that happens for a little one who is pre-verbal yeah yeah i mean wow there's so much to be said there so much of attachment happens in that first year and it's all nonverbal and it's all, you know, it's usually the mother, but any caregiver, but that they call the maternal gaze, right? And so this connection between mother, caregiver, and child that is all about being seen, 
right? Really being truly seen and every little detail too of the mother's face and her smile and her affirmation is all, all not verbal. It's all visual and, and physical in many ways. You know, my favorite, one of my favorite icons, uh, I have a lot of favorite icons as Dr. Peter knows. There's a particular mother and child that I just love where Our Lady's face and Jesus' face, like their lips and their faces are almost, almost creating one face. And they're just so together, you know, and it just speaks to me to that attunement. And it speaks to me to that mother child bond that is so beautiful. And so when, when that bond is disrupted and it could be, you know, like we heard the story earlier of, of adoption and, being foster parents and being moved around. And so that's a disruption. And it might be something that the mother has no control over, like she's in a war zone or there's something really ter- you know, difficult cert- life circumstances and stuff like that. It could be you know, any re- number of reasons but where that attunement is, is affected very early. And I think that does affect very early on that infant's ability to attach it affects you know creates early insecurities that are that are actually much more challenging to work through like even as a therapist it's those are often very difficult ones because people don't remember them first of all and and so you have to look go back pretty far like you have to be at you know in terms of like doing emdr and stuff like that you're not like recalling a memory so much as an experience with deep within and often a deep sense of abandonment or a deep sense of being alone or, or uncared for or something like that. But I do think, again, with God's providence, so much healing can happen even there. I've even, I've even done some healing work with people in the womb. <laughs> so I, I think that even in the womb, we, we, are, we experience attachment, right, in, in a way. And so hopefully that's getting to the answer. It's my initial thought. I really, I'll go back to how Bessel van der Kolk in his best-selling book, you know, the body keeps the score and, you know, we are embodied beings. And so often if we cannot symbolize our experience in language, if we can't share it in words, we can't join with another verbally, uh, we're going to need some other way, you know, some other way. And so you brought up the maternal gaze, Jerry. Just think that's so important. And I run across parts pretty frequently that are pretty verbal, you know? And so there are other ways that we can kind of connect with those parts. Sometimes those parts can borrow language from another part if they become a little more integrated. Uh, sometimes they communicate through images, through, through music or sounds, uh, through other ways. And so just a, a lot of openness when you're working with your parts to allow parts to choose the ways that they would like to be able to connect with you, you know, to be really open about that. Yeah. I, I just had a, a thought. I once worked with someone who had been born or put in placed in a Eastern European orphanage. And the situation was such that they were basically put in a crib with one other baby. And so they had a crib mate. And they basically like had a bottle pretty much like tied to the side of the crib. And so they were rarely even picked up. And so those situations, which are so heartbreaking, a lot of those kids have a severe, right? Reactive attachment disorder or whatnot. It's very difficult 
work to work with them when it when it happens so young. But with this particular case that was moved me so much was the person remembers their crib mate. Even though they were under the ear of one, they remember having a crib mate and they remember having an attachment. Can you imagine two babies that were attached? And I think years later, the mother told me that she met up with some other family that adopted the other, they believe the other crib mate and the kids immediately ran into each other's arms. Like they knew each other. It was rather amazing. But the work that one of the pieces that we did was having the grown up now person meet in a sense the part of him that was just an infant in that crib that nobody was holding and so a big part of the healing was him taking his baby self basically and holding him and loving him and, and moving back and forth between him loving this little baby that he's holding that's him and then feeling from the perspective of the baby being loved and being seen and being held and we just sort of went back and forth and stayed in that place for quite a while uh let that soak in so that that correct almost like that deep attachment wound that was so deep could could actually be repaired so that kind of work is just to me so beautiful and powerful so anything's possible like what i'm saying no matter how young no matter how difficult and the situation is god has a has a way for healing So just an invitation to, to just check inside with how you're doing right now, how each of you are doing right now. Just, we can kind of slow things down here. Just notice what's happening inside of us. You know, you may be able to notice some of your parts and how they're responding, how they're reacting to being in this episode this live episode and so just just to take a little minute just to to kind of notice and to connect and to see if there is a part that would like you to speak for that part you know like you as your innermost self to speak for that part and if it's okay if there aren't any sort of objections inside there aren't any parts that are concerned about over disclosure vulnerability those sorts of things if there are we want to really we want to really honor those parts. We don't want to steamroll any parts. We don't want to ignore parts or try to, you know, overpower them or anything like that. But if it is okay, if it does seem right and good, you know, for a part of you to speak for that part and other parts are on board with that, we'd love to hear whatever might be good to share. Clarissa, be great. We'd love to hear from you. I have a question, something that comes up and I have a hard time explaining and I'm not through the whole book. So maybe the answer is there. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But when it comes to the consent to sin, the self, and I guess blending. So when I, I speak to clients, if they're going to go to reconciliation, they're going to go to confession and they're talking about, you know, losing their temper or things like that, things that, that are made often firefighter, you know, blends in with them. How do you explain the interplay between consenting to sin, right, with the part's desire to do good for the system, you know, or blending? I don't know if that makes sense. I, and I don't, I can't explain it fully. So to explain it to somebody else, <laughs> just, I just kind of, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so I really don't understand 
how it works and, and how to explain that? Yeah, no, it's such a, a good question. And I think I try, I try to do tackle that in the book. As you go, you'll see different different ways in which I approach that. But but I think it's still a good question to explore. And I wrestled a little bit, you know, in the last so many years to understand exactly what, <laughs> you know, to answer that exact question. One thing I, I like to point out, I don't want to say like the part is sins, as if it wasn't me, it was the part, <laughs> which is a tendency uh, we might have, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I do think we need to be clear that it's the human person that chooses to sin when they sin. So, you know, there's a disconnection, if you will, between the will, perhaps the will and the intellect. But I would say that we understand parts and blending. You know, the way I look at it would be like an eclipse, a total eclipse of the heart versus a partial eclipse of the heart or whatnot. And, and so the parts can, in a sense, eclipse the self, if you will, and to, to an extent that does compromise true consent, potentially, especially in the you know, severe cases of, of mental disorder or severe cases of addiction or various things on some level, you know, and that's in the catechism. But most of us, you know, it isn't a, a one a total eclipse of, of the heart, but a partial. So there is a sense in which a blended part is kind of in the executive or is in the, is in charge or driving the bus, if you will, which leads us to sin. And so I, I, I tend to lead, lead with this sort of notion that when the inmost self is, or the noose, if you will, and when the inmost self is un like all parts are unblended and the inmost self you know sometimes you could say it's it's not darkened sin and whatnot and and it's your form is aligned with god it's aligned with the, the will and the intellect are aligned and and we don't choose to sin but when we have these inner conflicts going on and we have these blended parts and we have inner turmoil that happens that leads us often into sinful or at least unhealthy behaviors and so on and I would add, I really try to avoid the language of like parts doing things, you know, as though they have an entirely separate agency. And I think about parts generating impulses, you know, or generating desires. And so I think there's some writing by Dietrich von Hildebrand in his book, Transformation in Christ, that's really helpful to me because he talks about, you know, essentially the, the core of the person, the heart of the person either sanctioning or disavowing those impulses or those desires. And so that's where I would see the role of kind of the innermost self is to kind of, is to be be thinking about sort of, you know, in terms of sanctioning or disavowing. And yeah, I think at certain points, and we were talking about this uh, not long ago, Dr. Jerry with Anthony Flood, you know, about how, you know, how there could be mitigating factors that compromise the capacity of the will to exercise agency. And so, so I think about it in terms of those lines. And I'm wondering if, if that's helpful, Clarissa, if that, if that sort of lands in some way that's clarifying at all. It does, it does. It seems like the self, I mean, the, the system consents or the self consents, um, even though it's obviously the, the, the parts are influencing and maybe like when there's harmony, they're coming in and out or they're influencing in and out. But ultimately, the person or the, the self, I guess the embodied soul, consents to do or not do. And so that's what you take to reconciliation, right? When to the sacrament of penance is, is that 
And I, I know, I think this is a question. It's a great question. And I don't know that the answer is like, we have it perfect. Right. And we're, you know, cause I, there's, it's pretty complex. There's a moral theology involved in this and all kinds <laughs> of stuff, but I don't know. I, I myself wouldn't necessarily say that if you mean by the self, the inmost self, I don't think the inmost self is itself consenting to sin. I, I would tend to think that the inmost self is a little bit bypassed. And in, 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 in a situation, the will is compromised in some way, like Dr. Peter was saying. But I, I lean toward, toward looking at it that way, that it's more like it's bypassed. It's like I said, was saying, kind of eclipsed. Like it's, it's like there's a lack of access to the inmost self in those moments. Then the, the whole human person chooses to do something it may later regret. Does that, how does that, how do you, would you say the same? Peter, or would you say that differently? Well, uh, let me back up just a couple of steps. One is that one of the things that's remarkable about internal family systems is, is that it recognizes the presence of evil in the world. A lot of approaches do not recognize or do not address. But evil is always sort of like external to the person. It exists in these, what, what are called unattached burdens, okay? And there's not a way within internal family systems, as Richard Schwartz has conceptualized it, for there to be anything like personal evil. There's not really a conceptualization of sin. Basically, there's the idea that hearts are always doing the best they can. And that doesn't square with, with what we know to be true by faith. So one of the things that we're really having to do, and Dr. Jerry has taken a huge step forward with this Christian Amalu and his doctoral dissertation, which just, uh, just came out, taking a step forward with this is to is to try to figure out how do we how do we bring together uh, how do we harmonize internal family systems drawing the good from it but also recognizing where there are real limitations and where there are real contradictions in the way that that ifs understands the human person with with what we know to be true by faith so so yeah uh, we're really hesitant and sort of speculative about these sorts of things but as a therapist myself I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what level of culpability a person has for this or for that. It's just not something that factors very highly in what I'm doing. You know, so so yeah, I mean sometimes clients will ask those kinds of questions and I'll say, "Well, let's let's explore it. Let's just see where parts are with things. Let's try to understand what's going on." I I like to go to scripture as much as possible. And so when I think about the prodigal son, and he turned against his father, really. He took his inheritance. He basically was a slap in the face to his father. He went off and he spent everything. I think they say prostitutes and just blah, blah, blah. And he just spent everything. And then what happens, right, when he realizes I've lost it all and so on, and he, he chooses, he realizes, wow, I should go back to my father and I've been so wrong that I can't expect anything. Maybe I'll be lucky to be like a servant. And the, then he goes back in that moment of repentance, he goes back and he, in fact, the father sees him and runs, right? And loves him. We know the story and it's in the book, I think twice, because I love this story. I would say, so he sinned, right? He sinned against his father. He sinned against God. He sinned against himself. He lost himself. I would say he lost his inmost self, not lost it forever or anything, but he, it was 
it was darkened, if you will. It was whatever those impulses, whatever was driving him to do what he did um, that was sinful. It's almost like a part that his deepest core inmost self was buried. It wasn't, and it wasn't active or it wasn't. So I didn't see it as that's his deep inmost self is the one making the choice to sin. It, it was buried for various reasons and it was rediscovered. It was rediscovered in the moment of repentance to start with, and then it was rediscovered because when the Father loved him, it came out again. In other words, it was fully seen again. The Father kind of calls that out to him in loving him. So it's not a systematic answer of like, okay, exactly culpabilities here, there, and everywhere, but like, you know, how does it, how does the, it work logistically? But I think it speaks to the sense that when we sin, we lose ourselves. Not, it's not a question so much like our inmost self is sinning. It's like we lose that. That is the deepest core self. The deepest, the deepest us that's in connection with God gets lost. And so repentance and is about recovering it, is about rediscovering it, and, and so on. So I don't know if that's helpful, but kind of the way I see it. Yeah, I do tend to think of sin more and more. You can think of sin as, you know, the breaking of a, a law, breaking of a commandment. You can look at sin as a burden. You can look at sin as missing the mark. Uh, there are a lot of traditional ways to look at sin. I wrote a weekly reflection on, you know, seven ways to understand sin. But one that really resonates with me is the breaking of relationship you know, the damaging of relationship. And those could be relationships within ourselves, right? We are supposed to have relationship with ourselves. That's part of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are supposed to love ourselves. And so, yeah, one way to look at this and one way that I find particularly fruitful in my own examination of conscience is to say, okay, how have my actions or my omissions either fostered relationship, deepened relationship, improved relationship, or harmed relationship with other people, with God, with myself. We have a question. Yeah, Helen. Thank you both so much. We've all said it, but Dr. Jerry, I see somebody in your practice, uh, John Cathy. And so he and I talked a lot about leading up to the book coming out. He would give me little hints like, well, Dr. Jerry's going to address that in his book. <laughs> so I couldn't wait for the book to come out. I was like, John, can you just tell me the answers? <laughs> He's like, no, you have to wait for the book. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for your practice, your transfiguration counseling. I live um, in Marietta and so, and I'm a spiritual director. And so when people hit bumps in their natural human formation, I send them to transfiguration. I'm like, <laughs> You need to go get a great Catholic therapist. Let me tell you where they are. So thank you for all the, the many levels of what you're doing. So this question kind of pings off of what Clarissa was talking about. She and I are in the same RCC group. And we've had lots of discussions about the human person and the structure of things. And so we all love your chart. Her, her question has been about that, that sin and the will piece. And my big question has been coming off of one of these questions in the chat is what made me remember it is the interplay of the inmost self and the intellect. So Anne says, this is her kind of asking a question, I think. The intellect and the will are under the stewardship of the inmost self, influenced to a greater or lesser degree by the impulses of the self, 
would that be a good way to explain the interrelationship of the self and the parts? And that, so that really is my question too, is are the intellect and will, the self guides them? The inmost self is kind of overarching. I just can't quite ever wrap my head around how the intellect plays in there. That's a great question. And again, this is new territory, all these things for us. And so we're still discovering and figuring that out to some extent. And, and I have been deep diving as much as I humanly can into Thomism and uh, into, and also like I'm steeped and in love with St. Maximus the Confessor from the seventh century. Of course, he kind of summarizes a lot of the patristic thought. And so the, you're asking questions that theologians and philosophers in the church have been wrestling with for 2,000 years, really. And the brightest minds have, have wrestled with some of those these questions and haven't always agreed with each other. So I would just say, first of all, like, what an amazing question. And I, I, know, I can't possibly say that I can give you the answer that's like definitive and, okay, we're done. <laughs> I can give you some of my musings, though, and my thoughts a little bit on it uh, as I've been wrestling with that very question and the, this relationship. One thing to think about is even the thinking about the soul is has been an interesting one. And if you go back to even like Plato and Aristotle and their understanding of how the soul is divided, you know, you have Plato with desire and passion and the reason. You have Aristotle with also uh, reason and like passion and or, or you know, he has like concupiscent and the uh, nutritive and he's got these different divisions and so and then tom augustine picks up on some of it a little bit or some of the other fathers pick up on some of the platonic thoughts and, and aquinas especially the aristotelian thoughts so you can get me going all day talking about this i might get kind of dry but but i get what i'm getting at is the the soul was understood as intellect on some level is immaterial that it's a part of it's a part of us, so to speak, that that is immaterial and is as rational. So we say we have a rational soul. Uh, Aquinas would say that all animal, all ma animals and humans, we all have souls, but the humans have a rational soul, and so that is what distinguishes us. And then, then the the other Greek word would be nous, right? And so the nous uh, in in classical Greek would be understood as knowledge right like the uh sorry the mind the mind and so you you have the word noetic right or knowledge and noetic even the word gnosis or even the gnostic heresy is about believing that you get certain knowledge and that saves you right but this notion of noose being about the mind and so that was our understanding was was the soul is the rational mind and the body is the physical body uh, and in a way, like in my diagram, I'm, if I could show it in a three-dimensional way, the body and the soul would be actually taking up the same space. It's a two-dimensional diagram because they're like, they're overlapping each other. The so, so the immaterial mind and the physical body. Now, so the soul is rational, but what's interesting and what I've found very difficult to pin down when you read various church fathers, when you read desert fathers, when you read saints, you read these monastics, you read these mystics in the church, all these different kinds. And when they speak about the heart, sometimes it gets translated as nous in Greek, and sometimes not. And there's carpe and, and, and 
Latin, and then there's, you know, the noose, and sometimes, and so you get this sense, and even a definition of the noose as being the heart of the mind. You get this sense of heart and mind, something, it's something a little bit unique. And so that's where, from noose, not just understanding it in the very classical Greek concept of just the mind, in the Christian tradition, you do get this understanding that the noose is something deeper. And there's this sort of deeper place in the heart. And I, and I try to mention a bunch of the ways in which it's described. We've seen Athanasius calls it the mirror of the soul or this deeper center. And so that's where I see the inmost self. I see it in that deepest center and that it's the faculty by which we can connect with God. And so even when way I understand, you know, the, the, the problem in the church where they were debating is the human person, body and soul, or is the human person, body, soul, and spirit. And uh, overall the church says body and soul, but we have St. Paul saying in one place, I think in Thessalonians, body, soul, and spirit, what does it mean? And a lot of the fathers talk about the spirit, that spirit being the spirit of God, not the Holy Spirit, per se is not a part of the person, but it's this, it's the spirit of God or the Holy Spirit acting in the human person. And I think where that action in the human person happens is in the noose or in that inmost self. Okay, so I know that's a really long answer for what I'm getting at to say, when you're asking about the intellect and the inmost self, there's a difference between that spiritual center where the spirit of God is active and just the intellect in general, which is about being rational and, you know, understanding things and so on. And we even see a difference in terms of understanding the Greek words of logos and the Greek word for and nous, right? Logos versus, and we could get into that and maybe I've already talked too much, but as you can tell, I have an intellection strength in me that could go on all day about this, but I hope that answers it a little bit to know the difference. Than what we're talking you know what we're getting at so that's why in the question about sin that clarissa was asking the will and the intellect end up making a bad decision if you will possibly but i think it's because they ignore the noose they ignore that spiritual center in some way i don't know exactly how it gets ignored or exactly how that place plays out exactly but in some way it's bypassed and 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 then for whatever reason you know, we make unhealthy you know choices because we're falling and all that we miss the mark or we break relationships, all of that. But when that, as St. Paul says, when the, the spirit of God is alive in that person, you know, the, the will and the intellect are enlightened in a way. So when we can access the inmost self and when we access in the state of virtue and, and the infused graces of faith, hope, and love are flowing through the inmost self to all the parts, then the intellect and the well, are, are just enlightened and they're just on fire for God. And, and, and then we're, we're going to be loving ourselves and all our parts. And we're going to be therefore loving others. And it's just like this whole redeemed, regenerated man or, or woman, but not. So that's a long answer. I hope that yeah. gets to it. <laughs> it's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more complex than what Richard Schwartz offers us. Richard, Richard Schwartz <laughs> will say that the human person is the self plus the parts plus the body. It's a very simple equation for Richard Schwartz. 
I don't know if this is different than what you were saying, but I do believe, based on my reading of scripture, that we, the innermost self, can choose something that's evil. You know, I actually believe that it isn't just being taken over by a part. I think there's probably some sort of collaboration or something there. And I think parts have different access to different faculties at different times to different degrees. So I see it like the faculties being separate from the parts. So parts could have varying degrees of access to memory, for example. And so I think it's really something that reflects how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. I think the I think the innermost self could choose to surrender or at least not disavow the impulses of a part, allowing that part to have greater access to the intellect and the will to dominate those faculties so that the part drives our bus. I have no certainty, though, that that's accurate. <laughs> that's a very, very speculative. So, so I don't want folks to be thinking that this is somehow anything beyond speculative. Yeah, like we could do a whole show on that, Peter, like talking yeah. about that, because I think it is arguable. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, but we have like, it, you know, it, what does it mean when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? Like, what right. does it mean? Or what is it like to me, I would say, in my own opinion, and again, opinion, uh, <laughs> I could change it if proven wrong. But my own thought is for the inmost self to truly choose evil would be about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Like to me, for the inmost self to truly, it's like the angels choosing to turn against God. It's like being demonically possessed. It's like being, turning, like at your deepest core spiritual center saying, no, I don't want God. And I don't think most of us do that. I think that that's exceptional. Most of the time we we are giving into sin. And it can be serious sin that separate, darkens the news and separates us from God. It can be more even mortal sin. But I think me for the for in my head if the inmost self was so like turned evil so to speak like made a truly evil choice it would be a pretty profound apostasy so an invitation an invitation for you to write a review for dr jerry's litanies of the heart on amazon or on goodreads or both right you don't have to buy the book from Amazon to write a review on Amazon. I wrote a review on Amazon. I bought the book from Sophia Press. You're you're welcome to to leave a review on Amazon. It really helps sales. So let's help Dr. Jerry out on that. If you can't leave a review, at least leave a rating. You can just click the stars, right, if you want. And kind of an exciting little thing here. Catholic life coaches Ruth O'Neill and Michelle Dunn will be offering an official Litanies of the Heart book study. This is the only book study endorsed and supported by the author, who is Dr. Jerry. And it's an eight-week course beginning February 22nd. The cost is $295. To sign up, call Juliet at 551-282-9926, 551-282-9926, or email info at transfigurationcounseling.com. Put Litanies of the Heart book study in the subject line. The book study will provide the opportunity to do the exercises and the discussion questions in a group with plenty of time to process together. And also there'll be a meeting at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, February 15th, so that you can meet Ruth and Michelle, who'll be leading that if you're interested. So also join up with Dr. Jerry and me at the Catholic Psychotherapy Association Conference in New Orleans, April 25th to the 27th. Check it out, catholicpsychotherapy.org. 
we are going to have a couple of special events in the New Orleans area before the conference begins on Wednesday night, April 24th at 8 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. Anyone associated with Souls and Hearts is welcome to get in touch, get in, get together with me. We are we did this kind of thing when I was in Denver. It was a big success. Depending on how many people come, we'll find an appropriate venue. So podcast fans, members of the RCC, members of the ITC, if you like the weekly reflections, get in touch with me, prices at soulsandhearts.com if you're interested in that, or let me know on my cell, 317-567-9594. The next night, so that's Thursday, the 25th, after the Catholic Psychotherapy Association Social Hour ends at 7 o'clock p.m., we'll have an event just for those that are attending the CPA conference. And that'll be from 7 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. local time on Thursday, April 15th. We'll do some demos. We'll do some experiential exercises. We'll have a little bit of didactic. We'll have some time to spend together. So you're welcome to join for that if you're going to be at the conference. Souls and Hearts will also have a vendor table at the Catholic Psychotherapy Association Conference in the vendor hall. It's a great opportunity to stop by, to see us, to see Dr. Jerry, to see me. And Dr. Jerry has promised that if you bring him a copy of your book, he will sign it. So there you go. You can have it signed by the author himself. There's also like a lot on the program. Dr. Jerry is presenting with Christian Amalu. They are presenting a, a paper called Defending the Internal Family, a Catholic Approach to Internal Family Systems and Ego State Therapy. That's going to be on Saturday, April 27th from 2 o'clock p.m. to 3.30 p.m. And that's local time, which is central time. Christian Amalu did his dissertation and analysis of internal family systems, therapeutic factors from the perspective of the Catholic Christian metamodel of the person. It was all about grounding IFS in a Catholic understanding of the human person. I was the third reader on that dissertation. It's just excellent. These two individuals, Dr. Jerry Crete, Christian Amalu, they may know more about how to firmly ground and adjust internal family systems so that it conforms to the truths of our faith. So anything you want us to anything you want to tell us about that presentation with Christian, Dr. Jerry? You have a line or two that you'd like to share about that? Yeah. I'm just I was you know, I, I played with the title because because the title of the whole conference is Defending the Family. And I thought, oh, I'll be a little bit funny and call my presentation Defending the Internal Family. But I do think it goes beyond that. I think that one thing about Christian's present dissertation is he had that focus, the good focus that he had to do on the meta model, but he had actually a lot of information and research that he had done on the church, the history of the church, the Christian tradition, and how it aligns with parts work. And so he's going to have a chance to present on that as well. And of course, I'll be, I'll be speaking on that. So if anyone is interested, please join me in New Orleans. Well, we have one final, we have one final question. Are you planning on creating an audible book? And I know the answer to this because I've heard Dr. Jerry's yes. lovely uh, voice, that bass voice already on the recordings. The recordings are already done. So, well, I have, I only started it. I'm not finished all the recording of the whole book, but okay. I am working on the recordings for the whole book. And uh, I'm just, yeah, there's this technical stuff we have to get through. So as soon as we're able to, I will get that out and we can let you know. Well, I want to invite you to stick around with us. One of the things that Tanya had put in the chat was that she had said, praying with the litanies of the fearful, closed and wounded heart is so healing and encourages me with hope. So I reached out to Tanya and said, would you be willing to pray the litanies of the heart with Dr. Jerry to, to be the voice 
for us as we end today. So page, if you've got the book, this is on page 240. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, you created me in love and for love. Bring me to a place of vulnerability within the safety of your loving arms. Help me today by transforming my closed heart into a heart that can love you, myself, and my neighbor as you intend. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its sufferings. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its doubts. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its hurts. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its fears. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its burdens. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its hope and all its lack of hope. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its joy and all its lack of joy. Jesus, I offer you my heart with all its love and all its lack of love. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy, have mercy on me. When I'm withdrawn, Lord, have mercy. When I'm consumed with worry, Lord, have mercy. When I numb out, Lord, have mercy. When I feel cynical, Lord, have mercy. When I lose trust, Lord, have mercy. When I'm distracted, Lord, have mercy. When I try to escape my feelings, Lord, have mercy. When my body holds my stress, Lord, have mercy. When I'm under pressure, Lord, have mercy. When I'm filled with anger, Lord, have mercy. When I become obsessed with tasks, Lord, have mercy. When I feel the urge to act out, Lord, have mercy. When I feel ashamed, Lord, have mercy. When I feel unforgiven, Lord, have mercy. Jesus, I know you love me in all my wounds. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, my helper. Open my heart. Jesus, light of my mind. Open my heart. Jesus, my guide. Open my heart. Jesus, my teacher. Open my heart. Jesus, bread of life. Open my heart. Jesus, face of mercy. Open my heart. Jesus, my redeemer. Open my heart. Jesus, my life. Open my heart. Jesus, my desire. Open my heart. Jesus, my comforter. Open my heart. Jesus, my trust. Open my heart. Jesus, my safe haven. Open my heart. Jesus, you created me in love. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you created me for love. Hold me in your arms. 
Jesus, you created me to be loved. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you created my heart. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you see my heart. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you know my true heart. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you comfort my heart. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you treasure my heart. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you encourage my heart. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, you created me as your beloved. Hold me in your arms. Jesus, awaken and restore my stony heart. I trust in you. Jesus, receive my new heart. I trust in you. Jesus, draw close to me in my struggles. I trust in you. Jesus, forgive me. I trust in you. Jesus, give me new life. I trust in you. Jesus, hold me. I trust in you. Jesus, contain my stress. I trust in you. Jesus, relieve the pressure. I trust in you. Jesus, comfort my pain. I trust in you. Jesus, help me see that I'm not defined by what I do. I trust in you. Jesus, let all my actions flow from your love for me. I trust in you. Jesus, you give meaning to my life. I trust in you. Jesus, help me love and forgive others. I trust in you. Jesus, help me embrace my vulnerability. I trust in you. Lord, you are the healer of my soul and my heart. I ask that through this prayer, you will transform me more and more into the likeness of your precious and sacred heart. Let your kindness and compassion transform my heart and bring me always into the security of your loving embrace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And so, as is our tradition, we will close by invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for, Pray for us. St. John the Baptist. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us.